Hey everybody, this is Dr. Andy Wilzak. This week I'm talking to Dr. Kate Cavanaugh, an assistant professor at Michigan State University in the School of Criminal Justice, and she's got an affiliation there in the Department of Psychology. This is our first listener request episode. We're recording this during the global coronavirus pandemic, and I've been trying my best to get um, more people aware of what we've been doing on the show just to try to have something for people to use as a resource as a lot of us are trying to move our classes online with uh, very little notice. And so I had a friend who was looking for something about juvenile justice and I put out a call and Dr. Kavanaugh was gracious enough to take some time out of her schedule to record this conversation with me. I also want to say that we now have a YouTube channel in that same spirit of trying to come up with additional resources for people to use um, moving their classes online. We have several guest lectures that are up on our YouTube page featuring several people who have previously been guests on the show just talking about their their own work. So if you go to YouTube and search for Untenured Tracks, you'll find stuff there, including about 50 minutes from me rambling on about the history of anarchy, which is one of my favorite new subjects. So at any rate, this is episode 26 of Untenured Tracks. study that we've been collecting data for for about a year now. It's going to it's going to take us several years to collect all the data. Um, it's called the Adolescent Social Development and Sleep Study, and this is in collaboration with um, my friend from grad school and an awesome assistant professor, April Thomas, who's from University of Texas, El Paso. So it's a collaboration between the two of us. Um, and the way I want to the way I want to explain this study is to have you think back to your own adolescence. So maybe this was true for you, it was definitely true for me. There were two things that I really cared about. And the first one was being allowed to sleep in later and <laughs> like sleep, sleep, go to bed when I want to go to bed, sleep as late as I want, not have to wake up. And the second thing was being able to hang out with my friends. Yep. So those are two things that are, um, that are things that adolescents are interested in. And there's good reasons for why they're interested in those things, right? So adolescence is a period of a lot of brain development, and that brain development is aided by um, getting good sleep. And during adolescence, because of some of the other physiological changes that are happening, adolescents need to sleep on kind of a different time schedule than they did as children. Mm-hmm. That's the sleep part. For the social part, adolescence is also a time of a lot of social change, right? So um, peers become really important. Adolescents are really reward-focused, and peers are really rewarding. So any time spent with peers feels like a reward, right? Mm-hmm. So with that in mind, imagine if you are a teenager and you are incarcerated. Mm-hmm. Now, on the sleep end of things, maybe you have a roommate for the first time ever, Maybe you are in a facility where you're being woken up every 30 minutes or every hour for a bed check. Um, Maybe you're in a facility where you can hear a lot of noise from other people and that's not something that you're used to. Maybe you are in a facility where um, the bed's really uncomfortable, you only get one pillow. You know, the sleep situation is totally different. And in fact, in a lot of these facilities, um, the kids are are obviously on a really on a really uh, regimented schedule, and so they may have to wake up at five in the morning. Yeah. Um, and that's when their day starts, and they might be eating breakfast, you know, at six a.m. and then eating lunch at ten a.m. And um, it's just a much different schedule than what their bodies are kind of naturally hoping for. So there's a lot of evidence to suggest that incarceration might be associated with poor sleep outcomes, which are in turn associated with delinquency. Um, But there's not really 
any work done that's looking at this causally. So the first aim of our study is um, we're comparing across kids who are incarcerated, kids who are um, have been arrested but are on probation. So um, they also have those same delinquent risk fa factors, but they're living in their homes, um, and kids who have never been arrested. And the purpose of that portion of the study is to look at the extent to which um, incarceration truly does disturb someone's sleep in a way that's measurable. So the way that we measure that is using actigraphy, which is a fancy Fitbit that measures your sleep. <laughs> um, so the kids in the study wear these actigraphy monitors. They also um, do self-reports about their sleep, and we also get parent reports about their sleep or reports from the facility where possible, um, although that's a little challenging. Um, and so, so that's the sleep portion of the study, but it's the adolescent social development and sleep study. So the second thing we're interested in is when you're arrested, you're taken away from your social context. Um, and a lot of times in the delinquency literature, that's considered a good thing, right? It's like, oh, they have these bad peers that are being a bad influence, but that's not necessarily true. Um, sometimes kids make a mistake, they get arrested, but for the most part, they have a lot of social support in the community that's positive, whether that is a positive adult mentor or a positive other friend group. Maybe they're involved in an extracurricular that's positive for them. Um, and so they're being removed from that um, circumstance when they're incarcerated as well, and they are around only delinquent peers. Um, and so it's removing them from a context that's maybe a mixed bag um, and putting them in a context that um, is only kind of negative. So from a developmental psychology perspective, we're interested in whether incarceration disrupts that normal social development. Um, so the normal markers of social development, because kids aren't able to um, explore in explore socially in the same way because they're constrained to just the peers that they are around. Mm -hmm. So in order to address this aspect of the study, um, we have the, the youth do a bunch of interviews, um, a bunch of um, social development type tasks. And we also have ecological momentary assessment, so a daily diary portion where kids are reporting kind of in the moment, um, here's what I'm doing socially. Um, and so altogether, we're interested in how incarceration disrupts both sleep and social development and what that means for youth's mental health and youth's crime. Um, so I, being in a criminal justice department, really interested in juvenile justice, I'm really interested in that recidivism aspect. Um, but some other collaborators are also looking at the role of mental health. Um, so does having poor social development or poor sleep, does that affect mental health? So this is really cool. <laughs> Oh, thanks. <laughs> this is so. this is super cool. I wish I would have talked to you like two weeks ago because I just finished in my juvenile delinquency class talking about like biology and delinquency and um and having to do like the uh you know like the old biological theories are dumb. Yeah. <laughs> but let's talk about like nutrition and let's talk about puberty and like I've never once thought about sleep as something that should be in in part of that uh equation but like it's totally obvious right like, yeah, it's yeah. obviously should be um so a dumb question for you though um what what are markers of social development great question um so those can be things like um managing your emotions when you have a conflict with peers, that's a skill that takes practice. Mm -hmm. um, and so the way that we get that practice is by having these interactions with peers or with other social actors, could be parents, could be other adults. Um, and so at first, maybe if someone makes you mad, it's easy to lash out, but you learn over time that that doesn't necessarily get you uh, the outcome that you might want. And so that's an important skill for adolescents to learn is how best to kind of manage their emotions while having having these social interactions. Okay. So it's, it's like a coping strategies kind of thing almost and not so much like a, because at, at first I was, I was thinking you meant like different sorts of life course transitions that they might be making. Like, um, mm. I don't know, like their first job or their first serious romantic partner or yeah, graduating so, high so school. None that, yeah. None of that is irrelevant. Um, and that's, that's, you're right that that's what, um, CJ people are focused on. Yeah. Um, but for, in, in developmental psychology, when we talk about social development, it's much more about how do you manage these interpersonal relationships and then also kind of manage your own emotions and feelings in a way that's productive. So, so like kind of similar to emotional maturity. Yeah. 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 Yep. Okay. Huh. Um, so how did you, how did you land on, how did you guys land on this idea? of the because it seems like 
mean, like I said, I never have thought about sleep before, but to hear you lay it out, it seems like the most <laughs> obvious thing. Like, of course, this is something we should be studying. Like, how did you, how did you guys find this? Sure. So uh, as I said, my, my collaborator, the PI in the project is April Thomas, and she's a friend of mine from grad school. So um, we both went to the same grad program, took the same classes. Mm-hmm. And uh, we took a class at the time. This is back years ago now. Um, we took a class at the time um, on adolescent development, and it talked about the importance of adolescent uh, sleep for brain development. So nothing to do with delinquency, just mm-hmm. a class about adolescent development and the importance of sleep. And so that's um, an area of research that she's kind of been following since that point. Mm-hmm. Um, so she she knows a lot about sleep and adolescent development. Mm-hmm. I'm really interested in social development. Mm-hmm. My primary area of research is how um, how different social actors, particularly parents um, and youth, interact when youth are arrested or when mm-hmm. youth are incarcerated. Uh, so I was interested in this uh, social component. And so we were talking about... Um, I don't know, just various ideas. We wanted to put together a project to work on. Um, she has a great relationship with a facility uh, in Texas, in El Paso, where she lives. Um, and so we were we were talking about a way to kind of combine these interests. And then uh, luckily the project was funded. So we, we moved forward from there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, luckily. Um, so could you talk a little bit more about, like, um, you had mentioned you have this ongoing interest in how how families respond to incarceration. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So I would describe my research as um, trying to answer the question, how do laws and policies better support families when they come into contact with the justice system so that um, all of those actors can work together effectively? So um, when a youth is arrested, obviously the youth wants the best outcome for the youth, the family wants the best outcome for the youth, and the justice system, the legal actors want the best outcome. Um, But sometimes... um, there's not necessarily a shared language between all those people about mm-hmm. how to accomplish um, that, that best outcome. So even though everyone might have the same goal, uh, the laws and policies that are in place might not necessarily support um, getting everyone there. So I'm interested in how we can change laws and policies to make sure that adolescent development can unfold undisrupted, even in the case of an arrest, and how mm-hmm. uh, the justice system can better support healthy relationships between family and youth. Um, when we talk about families and youth of juvenile offenders, it's often from the context of like, well, what did their families do wrong, right? So if you ever see a, a news article about a kid getting arrested, say on Facebook, and you read the comments, all of the comments are like, where were their parents? Yep. This is a parenting fail, etc. That's kind of the only way we ever talk about parents in yeah. terms of juvenile delinquency. How did they mess it up? Um, but... We never talk about parents either as a support or also how parents are changed by this experience. So what strain does it put on the parent-child relationship when your child is arrested? You know, parents are are worried for their child. Maybe they're angry at their child. Maybe they're embarrassed about this situation. Um, And that puts a strain on the parent-child relationship during Mm -hmm. a time where it's really important that parents and children have that strong relationship so that children can, can navigate that transition into adulthood. So that's what I'm interested in. Yeah, I mean... The the example that just sprang to mind, um, again, I teach this in my delinquency class all the time, is uh, Kip Kinkle. Are you familiar with Kip Kinkle's case? No. Okay, so uh, there's a so since we have this downtime now, we are recording this during um, the coronavirus pandemic, early days in the U.S. Uh, there's a, a documentary on Frontline um, called "The Killer at Thurston High." Okay, uh, it came out in 2000. Um, but okay. it, it's still, I mean, it, it holds up. Um, I just screened it in my class a couple of weeks ago. And so Kip Kinkle was one of the first school shooters in the U.S. Uh, he, I like this case um, as a teaching tool because there's no way it would happen today. <laughs> like, <laughs> like there are so many factors that uh, of things that happened to him that are, it's just implausible to think that in 2020, like a, a kid would end up violent for this like bag of reasons, right? So he... He was held back a year because he was dyslexic. Uh, he becomes very estranged from his parents, who send him to a counselor who advises him that, like, your obsession with guns is good. <laughs> uh, oh. they, he um, He's prescribed Prozac, and he takes it for three months, and then just decides that he's cured and stops taking it. And his parents are like, oh, great, you're cured, so you can stop that. Um, his parents bought him all kinds of, like, a, an arsenal, really. Um, and so, but Kip kept getting in trouble at school. Um, 
because uh, he was, I mean, he was bullied a lot. And so he kind of went down that, that route of like a very angry young kid. Um, he ends up getting expelled because he, uh, he bought a stolen handgun and he brought it to school with him and somebody tipped off the police. <laughs> and so the cops showed up at his school. Um, this is in, uh, Oregon, um, like very affluent Oregon. So the cops show up at his school. Um, they find the gun in like a, just like out of a movie, right? Like in a brown paper lunch bag in his locker. <laughs> um, his dad comes to get him. His dad had been, uh, both of his parents had taught at the high school, but had retired um, before Kip got there. Uh, takes him home um, uh, from from uh, jail. Um, they, they get into this huge fight um, and Kip ends up killing his dad. Um, his waits for, waits for his mom to get home from work, um, kills his mom, um, shoots his mom, um, stays up all night listening to the Titanic or not the Titanic, that would be funnier, but the Romeo and Juliet soundtrack. That's what it was. I don't know why I said Titanic, the Romeo and Juliet soundtrack, um, (laughs) the, the modern, like the hyper modern one. Um, yeah, the Boss Lerman one. Yep. Yep. Um, listens to that all night, uh, and then goes to school the next day. Um, and walks into the cafeteria and opens fire. Um, he kills a few of his classmates. Um, when he runs out of ammunition in his rifle, he had like a handgun taped to his ankle. And so he's trying to like fight with that to get it off his leg. And the kids bum rushed him in the cafeteria and just beat the hell out of him until the police showed up. Yeah. And so in the documentary, um, you see, so like you hear this whole story, he had an older sister that they interview and like classmates that they interview um, that you see the police footage of them going to his parents' house. Um, and like the music is still playing. There's this pile of ammunition on the floor. Um, <clears throat> and then you see a picture of him, like a, not a mugshot, but like a, um, a picture that they took of him, like right when they arrested him. I mean, I said, now that I think about it, I think it is the mugshot. He's like, all oh, he's got like his eyes swollen He's very clearly been crying. Um, and then you get to hear his intake interview um, at the very wow. end of the film. And uh, it's so good because I mean, he's only 15 um, and he, his voice hasn't really, hadn't really dropped yet. Um, so he just sounds like this terrified little boy who is, who is like crying and sobbing about how, you know, I didn't have any other choice. I didn't have any other choice. Um, he makes a reference to like the voices he's hearing in his head, which people kind of debate whether or not he really was schizophrenic. Um, Mm. but yeah, like the, his parents are themselves like a a fascinating study in, and parenting. (laughs) Right. And I asked my students like, whose fault is it that Kip did this? Because there's a part in the movie where like his old English teacher, when they're talking about Romeo and Juliet and all the kids being like obsessed with this movie, um, she asks them whose fault is it that Romeo and Juliet died by suicide? And she's like, every, like all my kids always blame the parents. And so I ask my students like, whose fault is it that Kip, um, did what he did? And, uh, if I don't give them prompting not to victim blame, they will blame Bill and Faith Kinkle. <laughs> they will, they will go to yeah. great lengths to to say like the Kinkles were terrible parents and all of these things that they sh- they they obviously should have known better. And I just want to tell them like I hope that you don't have kids for a long time, <laughs> and I hope that you remember this when you find yourself like in this. I mean, hopefully not this similar situation, but like in some type of conflict with your kid where you just want your kid to be okay and happy and healthy. And you don't know what to do. Like clearly the Kinkos didn't. Exactly. And so when, when, when a kid is um, involved in the justice system, a lot of times for some parents, the parents have no experience navigating Mm -hmm. the justice system. And so they're, not sure just um, on a procedural level. They're just not sure what to do, uh, let alone managing all the feelings that they're having about um, about this happening to their child and um, let alone all of the other stressors such as um, can they afford to pay the fines and oh, fees, yeah. you know? And yep. so when a child's arrested, it's hugely stressful on the family, and yet the family is often who we, who we lay the blame at their feet. Yeah. Can we afford bail? Like, mm-hmm. even navigating, like, 
that specific facility that they're in because maybe for some families like they have always thought of these places as being like really scary dangerous places for scary dangerous awful people and now i have to go there to see my kid like what does that say about me so i imagine there's probably all kinds of like identity stuff too right yeah absolutely absolutely it's fascinating to listen to i I do uh, i did a study on um, interviewing the mothers of first-time juvenile offenders. Oh um, and part of what we asked about was kind of how, you know, what's changed for you? How does this make you feel? What's your reaction? And it's just really interesting to hear them. A lot of them are kind of like, you know, I throw up my hands. He's almost an adult anyway. You know, what, what more can I do? And then others are like, I am not sleeping. I feel like I, you know, I'm a failure. I don't know what to do. I'm so worried. I'm so afraid. Um, and so there are all sorts of all the whole spectrum of human yeah. emotions. Um, you know, parents are not immune to feeling that when their child's arrested. <laughs> For sure. Um, and just... So you had mentioned like wanting to to do stuff to like advocate for changing laws or finding ways that like we could change laws to better affect the social development part of it. So could you elaborate on that a little bit? Like what types of of changes do you like if you could call um, uh, Gretchen Whitmer today <laughs> and say, um, I'm, I'm so ori- impressed you're the governor of Michigan. <laughs> I'm originally from I'm originally from Michigan. My I, I, all my family still lives there. My sister. Uh, went to med school at Michigan State, and I actually I uh, had a relative who was a professor there, who I think is retired oh, no now. Way. I was trying to find him last night. He was in geography. Um, oh, cool! But oh, I think, that's awesome. I didn't I, know we had that connection. I think he's um, retired. Yeah. I was trying to find him last night on the faculty page, and I think he's not there anymore. <laughs> but <laughs> yeah, so um, no, when yeah, when so Gretchen Whitmer, of, in terms yeah, of policy change. So. Yeah. Um, I mean, so many ways to answer this question, but I'll bring it back to that, the study that I mentioned at the beginning, the social development and sleep study. Uh-huh. Um, so facilities can make pretty small changes that don't necessarily jeopardize their day-to-day operations or safety that can help with these things. So in terms of sleep, maybe that means shifting the schedule a little bit. So instead of having mandatory bedtime at 8 p.m. and mandatory wake up at 5 a.m., maybe just shifting that to accommodate what we know about adolescents' physiological Mm -hmm. needs for sleep during that time. Mm -hmm. Um, Maybe it means providing um, adolescents with two pillows instead of one. Um, That's a relatively cheap intervention that could go a long way if we find that you know sleep disruption is, is related to delinquency then that's a pretty low cost intervention yeah. um, so on the sleep side there's lots of things that facilities could do if indeed we do find that incarceration disrupts sleep which in turn um, is associated with um, poor mental health outcomes or recidivism from the social development side a thing that can that facilities can do is make sure that youth are able to stay in touch with those uh, positive social influences in their lives. Mm-hmm. Um, so some facilities, for example, youth are only allowed maybe one phone call attempt per week. And so what that means is um, if your parents are working, particularly if they work in the gig economy, right? So if they drive for Lyft or Uber, right? Yep. And they turn on their phone and they're like, oh, I didn't know I was going to have to work right now, but now's a good time to work. Then you might miss um, your parents when you try to call them because yeah. they are out working. Yep. Um, so facilities that have policies that say, um, you know, youth can only make one phone call attempt per week. Maybe just saying one completed phone call a week <laughs> or more than one phone call a week. Yeah. Um, maybe experimenting with um, video conferencing or um, increasing the number of visitation hours. A lot of parents really want to go to visitation but are unable to because of other structural barriers. Maybe mm-hmm. they are only held during the day, um, during during work hours, and so parents aren't able to go. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe they are only held um, on weekends when parents have another family obligation that makes it impossible for them to make the trip. So, um, Facilities can also make changes to make it easier for youth to stay connected while they're incarcerated mm-hmm. as well. So those are the, the sorts of small policy changes yeah. that um, that could come from this sort of work. Yeah. And so I think um, a lot of what you just said really uh, draws attention to how cruel <laughs> the system really is. when we're talking about like these very like tiny changes like an extra pillow and an extra phone call being significant enough to to reduce delinquency and potentially reduce recidivism um right at least recidivism that's not just like parole officers being very you know nitpicky i guess to put it politely about like you know technical violations and stuff um 
And uh, what was I going to say? Oh, yeah, just like even shifting the schedule, right? Because it's not going to change the work schedule. People are still going to work the same shifts. It's just I'm a mm-hmm. I'm a grizzled 45-year-old man who thinks you should start your day at 6 a.m. And so that's what you're going to do, which is right. <laughs> crazy. Um, have you been in touch with any people on the system side for your research, like talking to any of them about this? Yeah, great question. So the particular study I've been talking about, we're really lucky to have some awesome community partners. Uh, the facility that we work with has been great. The Department of Probation in El Paso has been great. Um, and they are, they've been from the beginning very open to um, making change based on the results of the study. And so that's the best case scenario, right? But in particular, the facility that we're working with is really interested in the sleep component because mm-hmm. they were noticing so many of their kids were asking for sleep aids from medical. And so the facility was kind of like, well, are they asking for these sleep aids because there's some underground drug thing happening? And, you know, is there some nefarious intent behind why they all want sleep aids or is there generally or genuinely an issue with sleep? And so the facilities are like, this could be a cost savings to us. If we find out that like all they need is a later wake up time, then we don't have to, you know, be prescribing sleep medication that the kids don't even need that is that they're just asking for based on these uh, structural things within the facility. So um, the facility that we've been working with has been super helpful and is really interested in Mm. uh, finding ways to make things better for everyone yeah and again i mean that that also like shows how cruel the system can be right like we're not interested in in this because we want to help the kids we're interested in this so we can save money on zequil well i, I don't want to put the facility on that they, they really have been great to work yeah with. no so they, they're looking for you know the best solutions that you know have positive outcomes all the way around so yeah hopefully if it's, you know if it's also a cost savings and if it also helps drive down what they um are concerned could be a drug issue then those are just kind of other benefits as well yeah 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 i'm i don't know like i i think there's something there about like the automatic suspicions that it could be a drug issue you know just like and i think that's something not necessarily with this facility but just like with how we approach adolescents in general right is like kids ask for something earnestly and then our reaction as adults is to say like something's up <laughs> like right, clearly exactly. so clearly you're saying, up to something I, can't sleep. I mean of course you can't sleep you have a roommate and you're in a cold room and you're on like a hard bed and you're super anxious because you're afraid and you don't know what's going to happen and like yeah of course you can't sleep <laughs> <laughs> yeah um and just like i i think about how we trust or don't trust adolescents a lot when we do this and like how that that in and of itself is something that's like almost kind of sad, right? That just by, just by, I mean, it's a type of age discrimination, I guess, right? Mm -hmm. Like while you are a teenager and probably into your early twenties, we're just going to automatically assume that you're lying about stuff when you ask (laughs) or when you make these requests. But once you're 25, then I guess we'll be, I guess now like (laughs) you're probably being truthful. That's so, it's such a, a strange like phenomenon like we always expect the worst of kids for some reason mm-hmm. yeah that's true um so what about the mental health side of it i mean i know you mentioned like the anxiety just like a like a general anxiety i guess associated with being incarcerated how else can sleep affect mental health so that's a great question i am a little hesitant to answer it because that's less my area of expertise no worries um but in general we know that internalizing disorders are strongly associated with um poor sleep Mm -hmm. um kind of in both directions right so um if you are experiencing an internalizing disorder which is depression anxiety um then it's difficult to sleep but also if you are not having um good sleep then that can exacerbate some of those issues Mm -hmm. um so internalizing disorders Disorders are what we're particularly interested in in this study. Again, anxiety, mm-hmm. depression. Um, however, I, I can't comment beyond okay. that in terms of sleep and mental health yeah. just because that's that's my no, area. That's okay. Um, so my my other question was going to be then like, have you done anything connecting social development and and mental health at all? 
Or is that also yeah, not so, a... <laughs> so that's that's another kind of goal of this study is to look at how all of these things are interconnected. Yeah. Um, so we're lucky to have, um, for the youth who are incarcerated in the study, we have also um, official records from their the mental health workers within the facility um, so that we can... Uh, try to disentangle what is a serious underlying mental health concern and what is I'm feeling anxious because I'm in an anxiety provoking situation. Mm -hmm. Um, and how, how are those things related to social development, to recidivism and to sleep? Hmm. Cool. Um, so let's talk about how you bring this stuff into the classroom. Um, so are you, are you able to teach like your, your stuff on this, like directly to students? Do you have that opportunity? Yeah, so I teach two classes. They're both undergraduate classes. Mm -hmm. The first one is a juvenile justice class. Um, so very easy. I yep. bring in my research all the time. Uh -huh. um, I also, uh, I only mentioned one study today, but I'm working on several different projects and mm -hmm. a lot of those um, involve undergraduate research assistants. So I find that from this juvenile justice class, that's a great place to um, get really great research assistants who yeah. are knowledgeable and interested. And uh -huh. um, then we kind of have this feedback loop, right, where I'm teaching juvenile justice and then they're interested. And so then they want to help out with the research and then they do independent projects and they can bring that into the classroom. Um, so that's, that's been really cool to see. Yeah. Um, I also teach for the first time this semester, I've been teaching, although now online, uh, I've been teaching a, a course that I designed called, uh, families, law and social policy. That's kind of looking beyond juvenile justice, just in general, how uh -huh. do families and children interact with the justice system around other issues such as medical decision-making or, um, reproductive rights or, uh, rights within schools. Um, so those those sorts of issues. And so, again, that's a great place to bring in both case law um, or example court cases, but also um, research. So mm -hmm. as a developmental psychologist who is in a criminal justice department, uh, I'm sure that the, <laughs> the students in my classes get a lot of psychology stuff oh, yeah. um, because that's that's my training. That's the way I, I approach these questions. So in juvenile justice, well, in both classes, we talk a lot about adolescent development. That's yeah. the way I begin the class is um, that the first couple of classes are just about adolescent development um, because to me, that's, that's foundational to understand understanding how yep. how kids act and why they behave the way that they do and how they interact with other people and how they interact yep. with systems. Yeah. Yeah. I, in my delinquency class, I, I tell them straight away that this is going to be like probably half of the, the semester is going to be sociology of adolescence, right? Because we need to unpack mm -hmm. like kids are different and uh, exactly. for a variety of different reasons that are outside of their control. And um, there's like power dynamics that we need to talk about and perspective and like some of the biological stuff. So, yeah. Um, and so also kudos to you for this policy class. Like that's, that's something that I'm, I'm becoming more interested in myself. Um, our students have to do a, a, like a senior capstone project, right? Where it's like a mini master's thesis almost. And they're required to have a policy section, but Nowhere in our curriculum is there like a policy course, which is pretty glaring. Um, so oh. I've been trying to, yeah. So it's always, yeah, the policy parts of their capstones are usually just like more education. Um, and so anyway, like I've been, yeah. I've been thinking about like, and this other project I'm working on, um, like just researching kind of the origins of the war on crime and the war on poverty and like how those policies came out of the Kennedy and, um, Johnson administrations has been like really fascinating. So I'm trying to like, this is all a long rambling way of my saying, like I'm learning to really love social policy types of discussions. So I'm really happy that you're doing that. And we'll probably ask you for your syllabus. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, happy, happy to it. yeah I, I love talking about policy because um, I that's actually what I did kind of uh, before I went to grad school. I worked after college before grad school in the European Union Parliament. And so I was really interested in um, how social science can shape policy. Um, and so I was, I was on this, uh, I mean, I, I was like a glorified intern. It's not as cool as it sounds. Uh, I was just not, I, I was... not expecting <laughs> know, <laughs> like, <right? laughs> this is like BT I, dubs. I, like I worked for the uh, European Union like, Parliament. Oh, go this kind of law school policy route, or I'm really interested in psychology and adolescent development. So I don't know. Um, and so then, you know, I, I got this, this job again, it was more like a glorified internship. Don't be impressed, but, um, no. I'm super I, I, impressed. I worked in policy for a short time. I, I, again, I was not a mover or shaker, but it was really interesting for me to see the extent uh -huh. to which um, 
the extent to which this policymaking, this legislative body was or was not using social science research. Um, so, or the, just the, the way that they consumed um, scientific research, whether it was social science or not, it was just really interesting for me to see. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was something that I really cared about when I went to grad school is I was like, I want to make sure that the research I do is policy applicable. I want to make sure that I'm presenting it in a way that makes sense to policymakers, um, mm-hmm. that they can digest. I want to make sure I'm understanding what current policies are when I'm designing my research. And so yeah. that's just something I care about a lot. Yeah. I think it should be mandatory for academics to have to work with politicians in some way, not to, not for the benefit of the politicians, but for the benefit of like, um, sort of, so part of it, I guess would be like the ivory tower thing, but also just yeah. like, you should probably learn how like ordinary elected people think about the world <laughs> beyond, right. beyond what you see. And, yeah. And, yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, I have students writing letters this semester to local electeds um, because I was very heavily involved politically for a little while. Um, and oh, cool. so it's it's a fun assignment because they I tell them, like, instead of a lit review, you're writing three letters to government officials about, like, issues that we agree on. And there's this, like, look of, like, somebody else is going to read my <laughs> my paper this semester. <laughs> the governor might read what I have to say. I'm like, well, no. <laughs> like, an intern in his office will will read it and scan it into a, a, a like probably several terabyte like large <laughs> file. Um, Tom Wolf isn't reading your paper, probably, <laughs> but like, yeah, somebody somebody will read it. Um, yeah, and like to them, like when they're writing their first letters, I was I I said like, don't don't write it like you're giving a research talk, like write it like you're just trying to explain in very simple terms. Like, and so their first letters this semester were about prison reform um, and like mental health in prison. So like ironically. um, And so we don't want to just write a letter that says like prison bad. Right. But you have to tell them (laughs) stories about like, here are, here are real examples of people who are not being serviced or served the way that they we think they should be when they're incarcerated and try to tug on their heartstrings a little bit while also giving like some evidence about, you know, prison is generally a terrible place and it's not helpful for people um, for the most part and just go from there. And it was a totally different writing experience. It's so much fun to teach it though. Um, And Oh, that's really cool. Yeah. Um, And just to see like the things that students get fired up about too. when, when like, you're assigning them to be mad about something <laughs> like what, yeah, what are we yeah. going to get mad about and what kind of policies can we come up with right now? They're supposed to be working on. And again, we're in this weird isolation bit of the semester. They're supposed to be working on um, mental health programming to suggest to the state okay. um, oh, cool. for the, for the DO, our DOC. Um, oh, I love that. That's, that's awesome. Yeah. This is a class that's really, yeah. Mental health and, and prison reform are, are, like the two big subjects that they wanted to work on this semester. So that's what we're trying that's to do. Great. Yeah. Yeah. Um, in, in the, the class I'm, I'm teaching right now, um, although now online, yep. um, part of their, their grade is to be a discussion leader. So each one of them is assigned um, a, a week that they are the discussion leader. And so whatever the topic we're covering, they can choose anything that they want to present to the class within that topic. Yeah. And then they, you know, assign the, the articles and they um, pose the discussion questions and they lead the conversation in class. And it's been so cool to see yeah. what things they pick up on um, within a certain topic. So it's like court cases I've never heard of or, you know, laws that I hadn't even considered. And they're presenting them so passionately and so well. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, I'm learning so much. So (laughs) it's really great when you can harness that student energy and that student excitement about something that may affect their daily lives or, you know, may have touched on on someone they know in a certain way. Mm -hmm. Now they have this this fire um, where they want to make things better. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And and trying to find ways to channel that excitement into voting is also really a yeah. fun challenge. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> um, and cause like, I don't know how big is East Lansing. I mean, it's the capital of Michigan, so it's, it's got to right. be bigger. So, so Lansing is the capital of Michigan and East Lansing is a separate city, yeah, yeah. which is always weird. Um, right. and so East Lansing is much more like a college town, um, mm-hmm. vibe. And then Lansing is like political center vibe. And so it's weird yeah. that they're existing kind of next, next to, each to each other. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. Because so I asked because um, I am in a tiny little private school in northeastern Pennsylvania. Um, the population of Wilkes-Barre is about thirty-seven thousand people or so. Um, and so okay. I tell the students like, if you register to vote and you vote, you could take over the city. <laughs> <laughs> like voter turnout is incredibly low. Um, in our our primary this past April. Um, for for the mayoral race, the incumbent mayor got less than 900 votes. Oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> and he he lost in a landslide, but the guy who beat him only had like 2,000 or so. Um, wow. So I was like, if you guys and like our sister school just across public square, like if all of you register to vote, you could be mayor, you could be city council, <laughs> <laughs> you could take over the city. And I don't understand yeah. why you don't do that. Um, yeah, and they're yeah. like, but like that stuff that adults do, <laughs> like, but you're, you're adults but who have more at stake. So than... I'm, I'm going to be a dork and like bring it back to adolescent uh-huh. development. Yeah. This is um, a study idea that I and a couple of colleagues have been bouncing around for years and just never acting on. Um, but isn't it interesting to think about how kids become socialized to be interested in being politically active? Um, so we talk a lot about how kids learn to have attitudes toward the, the justice system, right? Uh-huh. Um, but we don't talk about how they learn to have attitudes toward government as much. Um, and the, you know, and yeah. like how, how do they develop these attitudes? We assume that it's through the normal socializing mechanisms, but then you see things like the Parkland shooting where these high school kids overnight became major activists. Yep. Like how, how does that, how does that happen? What is the kind of developmental process um, that underlies that happening? How do kids um, be, want to get involved in government or want to get involved in politics? Like, how does that happen? So that's something that's interesting to me. I don't have the answers. Just oh, yeah. About a lot. Oh, no. I mean, part of the fun of doing that show is that we get to, like, think out loud about stuff. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, I've never thought about that either. And have, I guess, like, have always just assumed it was, like, from a, from, like, a social studies class or something in high school. Um but you're right. Like, how? Why was it that Bernie Sanders, of all people, um, has has become like the face of youth engagement right? in politics when he's like the the least likely person? <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> For so, so many why, reasons. Why do those things happen? Like, how do kids begin to have an understanding of government that makes them want to or not want to get involved? How? And I mean, maybe for all I know, there are people out there already doing this research. It's just something I think about a lot. Yeah. And it's something I, I feel like there's not a lot of research on. Maybe yeah. there is. Someone listening to this, please correct me. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah. This is definitely a call for for future conversations. Yeah. yeah. I just like thinking about like, <sighs> so I thought that you were, you were going to go in a direction of like, how do they learn how to, in, that they can engage with government or like, or even more broadly, how do they learn that they're adults? Which is mm. like itself a really like sociologically at least is a fun question because I'll I'll ask them sometimes in class like do you think of yourself as an adult yet and like sometimes like my favorites are the arms that start to shoot up but then like there's this realization <laughs> like yep. a quarter of a yep. second in and like their arm comes back down and they're not really sure how to answer because yeah. they're, they're I'm on my mom's health insurance but I'm old enough to vote. <laughs> So what right, does exactly. that make me? I, I asked my class the same thing. I asked them, um, how do you like? How did you know you became an adolescent? Like, what was the marker for you to, that you knew you started adolescence? And then, oh, what do you one. think the marker is or will be, or how will you know when you've become an adult? Yeah, and it's cool to hear what markers. Some of them have uh-huh. legal markers, right? Yeah. They, they'll say, "Well, you're 18, then you're an adult," or "Well, you're 21, and then you have all the rights that you can want." And I'm like, "Well, you can't rent a car," and they're like, "Okay, 25." <laughs> Um, so some of them say, you know, legal markers and then some of them say more social markers. Some of them say financial markers, you know, like being an adult means being financially independent, Uh means supporting yourself. Um, some of them say that it means being done with your education. So like some sort of milestone, social milestone. So it's interesting to hear how people conceptualize adulthood and adolescence differently. Yeah. And I was just thinking like, there's a, there's some kind of qualitative study here to be done with so many schools either canceling commencement now or doing it online because there are a lot of kids who a lot of students who uh 
Like, I think that's probably the last thing holding them back from really thinking of themselves as adults. And now they don't, yeah. they're not going to have that, ex- like, the awkward walk across the stage and, <laughs> and the, the way too long ceremony. And so they're not going to feel, I, I don't, I don't think they're going to have that shift of like, I'm grown up now. Yeah. And yeah. Like, that's true. What because is that? It's, it's nice to have that as a capstone event. That's like, yes, now you have transitioned like a rite of passage. They mm-hmm. don't, they don't get the beach ball. <laughs> <laughs> you know they can still decorate their caps though Hopefully. yeah they can yeah yeah i yeah i just i just i really want to know now like how how do kids learn to interact with government and like so thank you for for giving me this dorky thing to obsess about <laughs> on top no of problem. all the, on top of all the other dorky things i am obsessed with <laughs> Um, so to go back to the sleep thing, like how do your students react when you when you bring this one up specifically as like this? Here's something that is potentially a not necessarily like a huge driver in delinquency, but certainly um, a variable that we need to consider that's probably been under considered before. Like, do they have the same reaction that I do, or like, oh, of course, like that's uh, why didn't I think of that? Or like, do you get any pushback or? Yeah, mostly mostly they have the same reaction that you do. They're kind of like, oh, yeah, that absolutely <laughs> makes sense. <laughs> um, uh, obviously, some students who have not had justice system experience themselves are kind of alarmed to hear about the sleep situation in facilities yeah. or, you know, sad that they never considered how sleep might be different, you know, when you are incarcerated. But for the, in terms of the link between delinquency and sleep and um, that whole relationship, yeah, usually the reaction that I get is like, oh, yeah, I guess that. Yeah, that makes total sense. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm glad I'm not the first person who was like <laughs> who had that response. Then I feel less yeah, embarrassed for for dorking out um, yeah. on in front of you. Um, so, uh, what about just like the development stuff? Very generally, how do your students like wrestle with that? Are there um, are there the common stumbling blocks that you see for them where you're like, you're like, okay, it's week four, we're going to teach this today. And I know like these questions are going to come up and they're going to be stuck for a little bit. Like, like, what does yeah. that look like in your classes? Yeah. So there's a lot of myth busting. I feel like that has to be done, um, at the beginning of, at the beginning of the course. And so mm-hmm. I always like when we get to a point in the course where it's clear, they've kind of like absorbed it and the myths hopefully have been overwritten. Um, but I, I usually start the course by asking them, I do like a pre-class survey. And so I ask them a whole bunch of stuff. Um, but one of the things that I ask them about are what's, you know, don't think just answer what's the first word that comes to your head when you think about juvenile delinquency or juvenile justice. Mm-hmm. Um, and they'll, they'll say, you know, some stereotypical stuff, right? Like bad home, um, drugs, gangs. Um, and it's not necessarily the case that those are not part of the conversation around delinquency, but it's also true that um, engaging in risky behavior is relatively developmentally normative. And sometimes that risky behavior leads to breaking the law or could mm-hmm. lead to an arrest. Um, and so I feel like that's a lot of the, the myth busting that I need to do yeah. um, is saying like, there are things happening within an adolescent's body and brain uh-huh. Um, that make it difficult for them to make decisions in the same way that adults do. And so yeah. what that means, it's, you know, the perfect storm of this um, seeking out rewards, um, not being able to think through consequences, um, not being able to con- to regulate emotions well, behaving impulsively. It's a perfect storm of all uh-huh. of these um of all of these ways that adolescents think at this yeah. time that can lead to risk taking generally, but risk taking that is sometimes criminal. Yeah. Um, and so I also ask the students um, anonymously in the, the pre-class survey if they have ever done something where that when they were teenagers that they could have been arrested for. Maybe they were, maybe they weren't. Yeah. And almost everyone has, of course. You know, I know when, when I was an adolescent, I was doing all sorts of stuff that was illegal. <laughs> um, I mean, even even through college, I was, you know, downloading stuff stuff on BitTorrent and, you know, like, <laughs> there, are, there are small ways that I was antisocial all the early 2000s. You dangerous <laughs> criminal. <laughs> Yeah, but you know what I mean. And yep. so, so just, um, I, I think it's important for students to see that, um, 
some the, the it's not necessarily the case that that juvenile offenders are these hardened criminals who are way different than the rest of us and that they're uh-huh. they're somehow like qualitatively bad and damaged and different than everyone else yeah um and so i i really like making sure that i can get that message across early and i think a great way to get that message across is using the adolescent development literature and yeah. so explaining about normative brain development and normal social development and what's going on at this time that's normal and expected, but has the kind of side consequence sometimes of leading to an arrest. <laughs> so um, my first job after grad school, I was an assistant or a visiting assistant at um, a school in central Florida. And mm-hmm. uh, the year that I was there, there was this case in the news where I, f- I think it's universal, whatever studio owns the rights to the Harry Potter movies, um, okay. they busted a kid for downloading them illegally. He was like probably like 11 or 12. Um, and they fined him like $250,000. So like this big story. And I remember, I remember being in like the student union building and I was behind these two girls who were talking about it. Um, and they're like, yeah, I heard that the university is going to start monitoring our LimeWire accounts. <laughs> for like, like, what are we going to do? And they, they basically concluded that like, they weren't going to do anything differently <laughs> because of this. <laughs> And I was, I was standing there and I wanted to like interject and, and be like, you shouldn't do anything differently because <laughs> millions of people are stealing these things. And the studio just picked one poor kid to use as like an example, like, an example. like the, probably the saddest kid <laughs> they could find. Um, <laughs> so, That's funny. um, yeah, it's it's weird when, um, policies don't line up with normal social development. Yeah. Um, so, so one example that I love giving my students is uh, surrounding sexting. So, uh-huh. um, so it's it's fine and normative for adolescents to be exploring their sexual identity, their sexuality. Uh-huh. That's that's fine and normal. Um, and because our world is so digital now, what that means is some things that twenty years ago, forty years ago, sixty years ago were happening face to face or in another way are now happening digitally. Yep. Um, but the problem is that laws haven't caught up, right? So in most states, Michigan being one, um, if you so if if I am fifteen and I'm texting my boyfriend who's also fifteen and we're sending nudes. Back Back and forth uh, because that's the way that we're exploring, you know, our sexual yeah. identity. Um, and we, and, and you know, we have our phones confiscated by law enforcement. We can be arrested for a series of felonies yep. um, because we are distributing child pornography, we're creating child pornography, mm-hmm. we're soliciting child pornography. Um, yeah. And so the the laws are kind of out of sync with what we know about normative adolescent development. Yep. So even though, of course, it's important to make sure that there are strong laws against child pornography, it's very difficult to square that with, um, you know, how is this any different than, you know, make out point in the 1950s where you go park your car somewhere <laughs> or whatever. You know, kids, yep. are, kids are just exploring their sexuality in a different way that's digital. Yeah. Um, and then sometimes it's being criminalized. Yeah. Yeah. Because kids don't drive anymore <laughs> on top of that. <laughs> right? like the rate of drive, like applying for new driver's licenses is, is going down. Like kids just don't see a point. Why would I need to go anywhere? Everything I have yeah. is on my phone. <laughs> yeah, yeah <laughs> um, exactly. Have you, so this is kind of similar to the question, <coughs> excuse me, <clears throat> similar to the question about, on your survey about like things that they have done that they may have done um, when they were younger that were illegal. So first of all, like I, I like these conversations in, in these types of classes specifically because the students themselves are, are mostly still adolescents <laughs> or many of them are still adolescent or ba- barely have like a toe out of adolescence. And oh, exactly. I love when they take on a, like a, a kids these days <laughs> type of <Yep>. mentality. <laughs> You're like, like, bro, you are 18. <laughs> you're talking about like 16 year old kids these days have no respect um so that's fun but have you ever asked them like about ways that they may have rebelled like against their parents specifically yeah well i so i don't ask it in that way i ask them um what did what did they and their parents most often fight about when they were teenagers um, and we get some pretty typical answers. Um, so things like chores, curfew, what they wear, what uh-huh. music they listen to, what friends they're hanging out with, um, all that, all that kind of kind of normal stuff. And so mm-hmm. I try to tr- I try to tie that in 
to delinquency by talking about, well, you know, why did it matter to you that you were allowed to stay out later? Yeah. Um, well, because I really wanted to hang out with my friends and my friend had a curfew that was later. Okay. So that's because peers are really rewarding. Right. And so, um, that's, that's how a lot of kids get involved in crime, not because they want to break the law, but because peers are rewarding just like they were for you. And you know, that's why you're fighting with your mom about if you yeah. could hang out with this friend or date <laughs> this person. And yeah. it's because it feels rewarding to you to have that social uh-huh. interaction with your peers. Yeah. I, I try so hard to get at, at those parts of their lives. And I've had students before swear to me that they've n- they never rebelled against anything before, that they had these totally copacetic. And so I make fun of them like you're a nerd is what you're just telling <laughs> us right now. Um, I've also done a, an assignment before um, where I've had the class make a playlist of like rebellious music. Um <laughs> And I've had students, like, I, I will ask them, like, so what's music that you listened to when you were a kid that your parents just didn't understand? And, and I've had students be like, Taylor Swift. <laughs> like, no, Taylor Swift is not, like, <laughs> is, does not apply. Like, anybody who is a top 40 <laughs> doesn't really, it doesn't really fit. It's not, and but, but it just, uh, I don't know. That's funny. I like the assignment idea, though. There's a a goofy documentary it's free it's very short it's called heavy metal parking lot um okay and it's all it is is like 15 minutes of footage in a parking lot i think somewhere in maryland in the 1980s before what was the concert i gotta look it up um there's like some like hair metal band um and it's all these kids like they're all drinking they're all super high um, and they're just there to see this band play. And so I show it the first day of class <laughs> because um, I want them to understand that like delinquency is a lot of times like petty stuff, right? We're not yeah. we're not talking about Judas Priest, yeah, they're going to a okay. a Judas Priest concert. Yep. Um, and so they're like full eighties kids with like the leopard print shirts and most of the yeah. guys have their shirts off and they're like they're so sickly thin <laughs> and yeah. and the students are like, this may as well be like a documentary about aliens from another world at first. Um, and then I, I make it awkward. and like, you're like, cause we have a lot of students from that area. Like, do you recognize your dad here <laughs> by any chance? Like maybe you should ask your parents what they were doing circa 1986. Um, but then afterwards, like, so what did you hear them talking about? And how did that compare to like what you and your friends talk about? And they're like, actually, it's it's identical. Um, so there are like, I guess I found a back way to rebel, but I'm still waiting for that kid who's like, I don't know, I haven't found my dream like rebel kid yet. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm sure, I'm sure he or she will will be in your class soon. It's, yeah, just I feel because like you said, like the stuff is so normative. When students tell me that they never rebelled in any way, it just I, I tell them that I think you're lying. Right? You're you're just trying see, to see I, I usually get the party started by talking about some of my rebellious behaviors yeah. and then they feel a little more comfortable. Oh yeah. Um, and luckily I've plenty to draw from, so <laughs> <laughs> we'll save that for another <laughs> another show. Your dangerous criminal background. Um Yeah. Uh I mean I do that stuff too. My first speeding ticket was for racing on Michigan Avenue. And so I tell them that and they're like, like really surprised. When I started at my job, a student started a rumor about me that I I got the job because I was an escaped convict (laughs) or that I had been. Yeah, just because of how I look. And so it turned into this like thing for a while. Like Will Zach teaches about crime because he was in prison. (laughs) Oh my goodness. Like, so let's let's talk about stereotypes about like masculinity and um I'm a very I'm a big guy and so let's talk about like uh that like those stereotypes. Wow. Um so it's a good opportunity to like turn it around on them and make them feel a little a little, little guilty. <laughs> For yeah, it. yeah. But I've, I, oh my yeah. gosh, I'm, I'm sorry that that happened to you, but it's cool that you used it as a teaching opportunity. Oh yeah, no, I'm I'm used to it. <laughs> at this point uh but yeah i don't know it's just it's just really interesting i'm I'm gonna ask my students about the political engagement thing for sure um because even like i've i've had maybe before we had this online break i i had to have like serious conversations with them about like you have to vote in november like even if your guy doesn't win 
you need to vote because here's all these down ticket races that matter. And, you know, we talked about in the fall doing research on the judges that are running, you know, and like explaining like judges are among the most important candidates that you can vote for, you know, and whatever you think of the presidential race, whoever wins, it's not going to have an immediately direct effect on your life, whereas a judge might or you know, city right. council might or whatever. And I think that they kind of, it's starting to, to click for them. Good. Do you have any other like myths that you talk about have to, to deal with a lot? Um, I think, I think the one that we haven't touched on yet is I feel like a lot of times students come into the class with a really, uh, deterrence mindset. Yeah. Um, really deterrence focused mindset. So a lot of them will say things like, well, it's really important to uh, be like really heavy handed with juvenile offenders to teach them a lesson so that they don't grow up to be adult offenders. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I feel like I have to do a lot of myth busting around whether or not deterrence is an effective strategy for youth. (laughs) And, you know, okay, so what are the assumptions that deterrence relies on? It relies on you being able to think through the consequences of your actions. (laughs) Well, what are adolescents bad at? Thinking through the consequences of their actions. You know, what does deterrence rely on? It relies on punishment. What are adolescents into? They're into Uh rewards. They don't care about punishment. (laughs) Um, So I have to kind of break down, well, what does deterrence mean? Like, Uh and and why wouldn't that be an effective strategy for this particular group of people? Yeah, yeah. And even like that that, uh, developing identity too, right? Like if I'm officially told by the state that I'm a bad kid, then I'm a bad kid and I'm going to behave like a bad kid right yeah exactly oh yeah the students love talking about labeling theory (laughs) that's i think that's one of their favorite things that we cover Uh um i show have you seen the the children's movie zootopia yep oh yeah Yeah, excellent movie (laughs) um so there's a scene in there where the fox is talking about how he tried to join like the the it's like boy scouts but in zootopia land and they're like no you can't because you're a predator and like you're always going to be sneaky and sly and he's uh-huh. like, that's why i became a con artist because everyone would always <laughs> only see me as sneaky and sly um and they connect with that so much like that's uh-huh. my best explanation for labeling theory and so i talk about you know did you have in your school did you have like the bad kid uh-huh. why why did that kid have that label yep. you know and how was that label self-perpetuating yep. um and you know do you think that having that label changed that kid's behavior and so uh-huh. how is that any different when we're calling kids criminals and calling them you know offenders and uh-huh. doesn't that create a label um and so they're they're always really interested they can they can really attach onto that idea pretty well and the, the funny thing about the Zootopia joke is that it's grounded in reality, too, right? Like, right. there's a, a documentary called Crips and Bloods Made in America that talks about the origins of those two gangs. And you have these, like, old heads in there who were there at the beginning of it talking about how they tried to join the Boy Scouts. But the Boy Scouts were segregated um, informally. Really? And were told, you can't join because you're black and so these alter like these alternatives to boy scouts started cropping up in southern california as just like young men social club kinds of things and these rivalries started to develop um between them and they would they would fight each other but it would be more like kind of like almost like bare knuckle boxing like to hear them take to hear the old guys talk about it um and then as like you know, Watts riot happens and like subsequent riots and all like bad policy and stuff. Um, then the gangs became like really violent the way that most students would think about them today. Um, but it all started because Boy Scouts were racist and didn't want. I did not know that. Yeah. Super interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So again, like, like the history of policy, I think is super important to ground classes in because, you know, most people today would, would, I think when pressed on it, if you ask them, like, where did gangs come from? Because they weren't here when the country was colonized. Like, how did it happen? They would probably just be like, well, bad kids all decided to get together <laughs> somehow. Right. And wouldn't have, like, a structural um, or policy-based kind of reason for it. for that, yeah. 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 Um, and it's an opportunity, like, in class to talk about, like, alienation. And I have a lot of... So we get a lot of students from New York City and New Jersey and um, a lot of Italian-American students. And so we talk about the history of, like, Italian immigration to the United States and how Italians were treated when they came here about 100 years ago. And it's, like, not dissimilar to a lot of stuff that you see today with Latinx population. Mm -hmm. And it is really interesting (laughs) 
to 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 hear them like how they respond to this stuff. I mean, there's a huge case in in New York City in the 1910s, I want to say, um, where like Italian communities were being terrorized, and the NYPD response was like there were, there were NYPD commissioners who wanted to just keep a hands-off approach and their argument was that Italians are naturally violent and that we should just let this fire course through the city and it'll cleanse us of all the Italians. (laughs) And and so saying that to a student or a classroom that's maybe 50% Italian today in light of everything going on with the Trump administration is super fun. (laughs) Wow. Um, but before I like dork out more on my crime history project, we will stop there for today. <laughs> um, thank you so much for for taking the time out of your out of your day to talk with me. I really appreciate it. Oh, of course, I'm a huge podcast person, so this is a dream come true. Never like I like, hey, look, my made it. I can't believe I'm on a podcast. <laughs> this is the best. So happy to do it. I always love talking about research. Hey, Andy Wilzak again. So I hope you enjoyed this week's show as much as we enjoyed putting it together. If you did, we would really appreciate it if you left us positive reviews, five-star ratings on iTunes and all the other podcast places that you can do this stuff. And more importantly, this show thrives on word of mouth. So we are doing this completely through social media. All of the guests that we've had are people that I found on Twitter. (laughs) So if you are untenured and you are in any kind of academic discipline or you have an advanced degree and are working out in the field and you want an opportunity to come online, come on the show and hype your stuff, please reach out. You can follow us on Twitter at Untenured Tracks or me at Hey Dr. Will. That's H-E-Y-D-R-W-I-L. Please send me a message on one or both accounts and we will book you on the show. It doesn't matter what your discipline is. I know that a lot of our previous interviews have been sociology and criminology based because that's my background, but I am open to anybody. So again, please rate and review the show. Tell your friends, tell your people about this, and I'll see you next week. Bye.